The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Inside the QB factory where our magical development dust make dreams come true. I am your host, Michael Kiss. This is all, of course, brought to you by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. And joining me, as always, to break down some Carson Wentz, yay, and the upcoming enemy opponent. He is QB1 in our hearts, in our minds. He is Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. All of his work over at Pat's Pulpit, Touchdown Wire, all that good stuff. Mark, how you doing, brother? Mike, does our magical development dust, has it done anything? I feel like our magical development dust has actually ruined more things than it's helped at this point. I, I think a, a, a serious wind picked up and then tr- that carried that dust all the way out west and is just sprinkling and showering over Nick Mullins, which is... Maybe that is what it happened. ain't in. It's just it not ain't in Philly, Philly anymore. Now. And you know the lot I could probably use from an event on Tuesday night, but I'm not going to go there because I don't want to be reminded of an event on Tuesday night. But I do start with our historical reference. And those of us that have been with Mike and I for a long time probably know that Mike and I, our, our friendship was forged on the battlefield of Verdun years ago, <laughs> Battlefield 1. And I feel it's appropriate to return to the Battle of Verdun here. And for those who aren't quite aware of this battle from World War One, this was one of the longest, bloodiest, and most ferocious battles, not just of World War One, but like period. This went from February of 1916 to December. It was like basically a year of just horror. French casualties, somewhere around 400,000 Germans, somewhere around 350,000 estimates, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 people killed. The whole German idea of this offensive was to just win a war of attrition, just like wear down the French, literally bleed them out and just make them surrender. Now, it didn't Mm. quite work that way. The French actually sort of held their own. They had a massive counteroffensive, which retook some forts that they had lost along the line. And it's now sort of a a bit of French heroism. And perhaps the definitive work on Verdun is The Price of Glory by Alistair Horn. And I want to just read from how this book ends. And I think it's appropriate. It ends like this. A few years ago, a colonel in the new German Luftwaffe told the author how he had been traveling from Germany to attend a NATO meeting in Paris and had taken the route through Verdun. And here's the German colonel now. On the hills outside the city, I was held up by roadworks. A bulldozer was at work, cut a new road, 
and as its blade entered the earth, out tumbled German steel helmets of the First War. It was a strange sensation. Here I was, a German officer, on my way to sit in conference with our French allies. I could hardly believe that all this had happened only 44 years ago, even just within our lifetime. It was more like watching archaeologists dig up the very distant past. Now here's Horn to close out the book. The folly, the waste, and the stupendous courage of the men who fought at Verdun indeed seem to belong to an age a thousand years removed from our own, the world of Falkenhayn and of Mvel, of the murderous rivalry between the Gaul and the Teuton supermen to have disappeared in the mists of ancient history. How much longer will the ghosts of Verdun continue to torment France? When will they be exercised? When will it be the last of the old warriors, Garden Dormont, and its memories have moved on to their Valhalla? Or will France have to wait until the eerie forests on the Montholm mature and are hewn down, and farms and happy villages once again populate its dead slopes. So, Mike, you have a battle, a horrific battle, that ends almost in a sense in a stalemate and leaves the author of the definitive work with more questions than answers. And so I turn to you, Mike. After a tie <laughs> between the Eagles and the Bengals, do we also have more questions than answers? Oh, absolutely. And and look, I, I, coming into that game, I just said, just just win. It doesn't have to be pretty. Just win. And they could they couldn't even do that against the Bengals, and it really did feel like I don't know. I I feel like Verdun was more at least I don't want to say exciting in a positive way, but there was a lot more action uh, than what I saw from the Eagles. I was bored out of my mind during that game, and I'm bored with this offense. And, and we're gonna get into it. So every week, like we do here on the QB Factory. We're going to hit up our Carson Wentz performance review of that game with the Bengals. And then we're also going to look ahead to the up, uh, upcoming enemy opponent. Uh, in this case, we, we know that that Jimmy G is is trying to come back and, and he might not come back and whatever. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about Nick Mullins today. And if Jimmy G ends up getting the green light, I'll either rouse Mark out of bed at like 2 a.m. to record like a 15 minute spot on him or I'll cover it on Quick Jam. We'll talk about Jimmy G in some way if he does come back. But right now, I want to talk about Nick Mullins because I, I I think he's the more fascinating player, uh, quarterback in that offense. But first, of course, as every week, we start off with our Carson Wentz performance review against the Bengals, and we'll we'll dive right in, man. Like first play of the game, they they badly wanted a shot to Deshaun Jackson to inject some life into this offense. He stumbled on his double move. Uh, I, I think without that, that they actually connect here for a big gain. But after that, no more deep shots for the rest of the game. Only two completions on throws over 10 yards in the air. It's dink and dunk offense. It's the same thing we saw last year. On the season, scoring drives for the Eagles take an average of 9.2 plays. That's the fourth highest in the league. And it's the field goal drives where they're moving the ball and they cross into the 40. And that's where they just start to bog down. They're below average in red zone efficiency. They're just stuck in mud. And it's frustrating to watch. And Mark... When you don't have the deep shots, either because they aren't hitting or because they aren't there, you need the team to execute consistently to move the chains. And you especially need your quarterback to be accurate and decisive to keep you ahead of the chains. And that hasn't been the case for Carson Wentz. Week to week, his PFF adjusted completion percentage has ranked 27th, 29th, 25th. He's been in the negative with next gen's expected completion percentage for three weeks running. So you've got a horizontal plotting offense and an inaccurate quarterback I don't even know if you have a, if I have a question per se Mark this is just kind of me venting at this point because it's so doggone boring to watch yeah and I'm so glad you started with both that shot play off the top and the deep stuff because from when I charted this game out on throws of over 10 yards in the air okay I had once at three of 13 
I had them with two explosive plays. I looked this up, an EPA of minus 0.12 on those throws. And they used motion on just three of these. If you've listened to me, if you've listened to this show, you know you and I have talked about the importance of motion and what it does for a quarterback. Interestingly enough, on perhaps one of the two explosive plays they had, the whole shot touchdown to Greg Ward before halftime, Mm -hmm. they used motion on it. Right. And what was interesting about it in both those examples, you thought pre-snap you were getting man coverage and then they rotated it to zone, which tells you Wentz is fine between the ears right now. It's the execution physically and it comes back to that left foot. And if you want to look this stuff up, second quarter, 459, second and nine, it's a middle read seam type throw to the tight end against a cover four middle of the field open look. He crosses the safety's face. It's the read and the throw you want to make and his left foot is a mess. It is again perpendicular to the target. First and 10 overtime, 752 mark. Play action play, left foot, it's a mess. Again, perpendicular to the target point. The mechanics are an issue now, and they've been an issue for a while. And when you have to become this plodding horizontal offense because you're not hitting shot plays downfield, you have to be precise and accurate, and there's almost no margin for error. If you have to execute 10, 12, 13 play drives, that's what defenses want you to do because they know eventually you might make a mistake. And when you can't step right like most high school quarterbacks know how to do, you're going to have a problem doing that. So you mentioned it be a bit, you know, in between the ears and, and the mental game, but I did see some instances, and you're right on those, right? Those are the positive throws, and we'll talk about those. But the interception on the first drive of the game, it's a Philly staple one that typically goes well for them. And I was shocked to see Wentz read this thing so poorly or like not read it at all. I mean, it's mesh sit wheel. They've run this thing multiple times a game since Doug got to Philly back in 2016. I will say that teams are doing a better job lately of capping that running back wheel with a defensive back as opposed to putting their linebacker in a bind, trying to dart out to the flat, trying to decide if he goes under the pick or over the pick. And that's what Sissy does here. But the, the triangle read in the middle of the field the two shallow crosses with the sit route over top of them, it yeah, it's well covered up. But Wentz has to see that Logan Wilson is underneath because even if it's not tipped, like Wilson is all over this thing. Like when you see the basics devolve to this point, the easy plays that you take for granted, like what does that tell you about where Wentz is mentally right now? I mean, you do sort of wonder if he is pressing. You do sort of wonder if he's feeling sort of pressure on the field and off. And look, we talked about that interception like when it happened. I mean, it's not like you said, it's not the most difficult concept to read. It's something that most quarterbacks that are playing on Friday night this week know how to read. It's it's mesh set, right? And so the fact that he would see that and he would fail to see the underneath defender that's like looking right at him. I mean, it's not a situation where this guy is like hidden in any way or obstructed by the route concept. Again, it's not a concept that he's never read before. This is a rookie linebacker from Wyoming reading your quarterback's eyes, getting under the sit route. It's zone coverage. I understand why on zone coverage you go to the sit route. Like, Like that's what you're supposed to do. 
but you have to at least understand that this guy is there and do something to move him. Right. Because if you don't, it doesn't make sense. And oh, by the way, here's something else to think about. It's mesh sit wheel. You've got that wheel route now. And if it's zone coverage, there's an opportunity to at least peak that. Mm. He doesn't. That route's open. Like that's an even leaving situation. That route is potentially there for him. And instead he throws it to a rookie linebacker who just has to make the easiest interception of his life. And this is a guy that played at Wyoming. And he practiced against Josh Allen, I think. So, I mean, this was the easiest interception of his life. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. My idea for for a quick jam in the future is that that I want to I, I want to record something that is centered around the theme of enjoying what's actually good with the Eagles, like Malik Jackson or no. Darius Slay, guys yeah. that are actually playing really well. And it's a short list, a but short list. in the spirit of, of looking at the positives, what's there for once? And, and shout out to Fran Duffy and Greg Cosell. Mark, you alluded to it as well. They had a breakdown of the cover two disguise that Wentz diagnosed on the touchdown to Greg Ward. So I thought that was a real positive. But Mark, when you watched Wentz, like what are the positives? Maybe not only in this game, but also like overall, like what what do we have to feel good about this guy? He had one throw in overtime that I thought was fantastic. It was second and six, 452 mark. This is, I wrote in my notes when I was breaking this down, like this is the one, this is the one you want to see from Wentz because they've Mm. got... Trips to the left, Y ISO situation to the right. It's a topper concept, three slants. He that's where he opens. Like he opens to that side of the field. He wants to read that concept first. It's not there. And so he comes off of it and reads this sort of Y smash situation against a zone coverage look. And he has to drop in a throw over the top of the underneath defender. Do it with touch, do it with time, and do it with placement. And also do it with the sort of clock running down and play clock in the, in the back of his mind. And yeah. you're doing it in overtime when you need to make a big play. That was, like I said, I wrote down, this is the one. This is the read, the throw, the reset in the footwork, the pocket footwork. Like everything sort of comes together for him on this play. And you just wonder, where is it the rest of the time? Like, right. if you've got it up, look at the end zone angle of this, okay? Mm-hmm. Because you see him open to his left. Reset, work through his reads, pump once, reset the feet, and the left foot is actually pointed to yes. where it needs to be. It's like, yep. this is it. Yep. Like, if you're Doug Peterson, if you're Press Taylor, you clip this play, email it to him, you slide it into his DMs, <laughs> like, you text it to him at all hours of the day and say, look, this is who you are as a quarterback. Like, this is it, man. Like, do this. Mm. Like, it, like, it's the LeBron James, like – pointing to something mean like this is what it is yeah like this is the quarterback that he can be at times and he's i I think he still can it's just he's not doing this anywhere near the consistency that he needs to yeah and this is a nice read too because they come out it's like a two high shell it's middle of the field open they rotate to middle of the field closed after the snap and Wentz is able to process that and understand that he's going to have, you know, Ertz one-on-one on the on the ISO on the backside. So, I mean, nice throw. And hopefully yeah. hopefully we can see more of that against the against the four deniers coming up. Uh, speaking of – I'm so tired of talking about this team, brother. I, 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 let's just move on. Just we'll move, move on. on. We'll move to- – <laughs> We're going to rename this show the Mullins Factory, the Shanahan Factory. Because we're going to talk about the best quarterback on the San Francisco 49ers roster in a second. Hit him with the take. All right. So we're going to talk about what Mark thinks is the the best quarterback on the 49ers roster. I don't know if I disagree. That's coming up next here on the QB Factory. 
And we're back here on the QB Factory, episode 12, SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, bringing it to you. Michael Kist here with Mark Schofield, quarterback one in our hearts and our minds. So we did our, our we drudged through our weekly Carson Wentz we performance review. Verdun. Yeah, Verdun style. Hopefully the, the next one is, is a lot more cheery. Uh, but let's, let's talk about what's going on with the 49ers. So again, we are not sure if Jimmy G is going to play this game. They're going to try. Uh, we don't know. Right, right now, I think Nick Mullins is going to be the starter. If it ends up being Jimmy G, we'll record something, you know, or I'll record something about that later on. But we're, we, I, I want to talk about Nick Mullins here. And, and look, the, the banged up 49ers and, and the Eagles should, you know, look at their injury list, look at what the 49ers got going on and understand the 49ers were able to beat up on the hapless New York Giants 36 to 9. Right. Showing that you can play good football against bad teams with a rack of injuries. And they did it with their backup quarterback, Nick Mullins, who Kyle Shanahan is quite fond of, in my opinion, is the type of backup that you love to have when you need them for a stretch. A guy that can get you through some games and rack up a couple wins if things are right around him. On the day, he was 25 of 36, 343 yards, 9.5 yards per attempt, one touchdown passer rating of 108.9. As I was going through his throws, Mark, I, I just got the feeling that. Shanahan was just running the offense like they normally would, and they weren't afraid to push the ball. You know, I, I mentioned Wentz only having two completions beyond 10 air yards in, in the air. You, you had him for three. Mullins at 10 plus yards, nine for 14, 153 yards. And even when they threw it short, the 49ers gave him a good deal of yak to, to really boost up that offense. And they spread the ball around, too. Uh, did you see the same thing in terms of how the offense functioned and how Mullins functioned within the offense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, let's be clear. You know me. I'm not known for like dropping hot takes or takes period. I'm like Mr. Right. Lukewarm too cold when it comes to this. But I'm there with Nick Mullins. Like I do think that he's the better quarterback between him and Jimmy G right now. I And, and this is something that almost predates this season. Right. I remember like two years ago writing over at Pat's pulpit that Mullins should be their target for a post-Tom Brady world. Like, this is the guy. Like, you watch him, anticipation, manipulation, all the little things. Now, those are the, the, the things that led me to believe that Brett Rippon was quarterback four in last year's draft class. And so maybe I'm not the guy to listen to. But Mullins checks a lot of the boxes that used to matter at the position, all those little small things. And when you see this game against the Giants, it's Shanahan's offense. Like, they haven't changed anything. They haven't said, look, man, you're our backup, so we're just going to run slant flat 11 times because, you know, that's all we can call. They're running the same stuff. They're running leak. They're running vertical concepts. They're letting him challenge downfield. You know, he's taking those shots if he can. If not, he's checking it down. He's making smart decisions with the football. As He's efficient when he pushes it downfield. Like you pointed out, 7 of 9 in this game. Not Wentz numbers, obviously. And so, yeah, look, I, I think – this is a kid that can play the position. And obviously Shanahan has a certain type at quarterback. Like Jimmy Garoppolo. He drafted C.J. Beathard in the third round. Now Nick Mullins. Like he wants guys that are smart with the football, make quick decisions with the football, and that are accurate. And he'll fill in the rest schematically. That's what he has at Mullins. Like mm. this kid is good. And that's why the 49ers turned down every single trade offer that they got for him this last offseason. Yep. They really do love this cat, even though they have a uh, what they think is a franchise quarterback on a, on a big contract now. So they definitely have faith in him to, to run run the offense. And like, this is going to sound crazy, but I think it's easy to undersell Mullins if you're not too, too familiar with him. The guy is definitely function. I, I think my question now is, Mark, like, 
what rattles Mullins? Where can you get him? What are his weaknesses? What can the Eagles do to him? What does it look like when he has a bad game? Why does that happen? Well, I mean, I think like with most quarterbacks, it starts with pressure. Like if you could get quick interior pressure on him, which again is like, you know, the old cliche thing, like that's one situation that does rattle him. His arm is NFL sufficient. Mm. It's not great. You put those two things together, that screams to me Rex Ryan versus Tom Brady. That mm. screams to me, you show him some different looks up front. You try to get pressure on him. You use sometimes those radar alignments like we've seen teams use where you don't know who's coming, who's going. We saw that Monday night from the Ravens a couple of times against Mahomes, and it worked early, but you got to play 60 minutes against that cat. Like So you try to get pressure on him. And then you take away underneath throwing lanes. You force everything to the boundary. If he's going to be hitting 15-yard, 20-yard out routes against you and he wins that way, like, fine. Tip your hat to him. Call him your daddy. Move on with your life. (laughs) But if you let him hit the underneath stuff, if you let him seem comfortable in the pocket and you let him hit the throws he wants to hit, well, then that's on you. Like, you've got to take away that stuff first. Rattle him a bit, move him off of his spot, and force him to hit shot plays or routes on the outside deeper than, say, 5 or 10 yards downfield. That's what you've got to do against him. That's your best shot. And, and I mean, you look at the way the 49ers are built, and they're getting back George Kittle. They're probably getting back Debo Samuel. They have Brandon Ayuk. They have all these big yak guys. If you let him throw short, he's going to take that all day, and they're just going to yeah. blow up his stats after the catch. That's just what they're going to do. And the Eagles are, are yeah, you know. I, I mean, a, a prime example of that was his first start, if I'm not mistaken, was against the Raiders a couple of years ago when Garoppolo got hurt and they benched Bethard. And one of his biggest plays in that game, I believe it was a Monday nighter or a Thursday nighter. I think it was a Thursday nighter now that I think about it, was just a simple slant route to George Kittle. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those moments where he was backside. He was actually frontside of a three by two. It was empty formation, and you know as the quarterback, that middle linebacker in the rat is going to open to the number three guy. He's going to yep. open to his hips. So he's opening his hips to Kittle, but that's where he wants to go with the football. So what does he do? Takes a snap, stares to the right. That linebacker does what you don't want him to do if you're the defensive coordinator. He says, oh, well, he's clearly thrown that way, so I'm going to ignore all the stuff I'm supposed to do and look this way. And that's when Mullen snaps his eyes back, just throws a simple slant route. And what does Kittle do? He houses it. It's like a 76-yarder. Yep. Like, he'll do that. Like, if you're going to give him that, he'll do it. So you play inside leverage. You could trick the throwing lanes. You got, you know, one cross and all those kinds of concepts where you're nailing down on those crossing routes. You take that stuff away. You play inside leverage. You force everything to the boundary. And you make him throw those 20-yard out routes. That's what you do to beat this guy. Let's let's throw out some stats here and we could talk about the the play action attack for the San Francisco 49ers. Nick Mullins was fourth in play action frequency in week three. He went 10 for 16, 137 yards and one touchdown on the season. The Eagles defense against play action, combining these three quarterbacks that they played, they've allowed 30 for 41. That's a 73 percent completion percentage, 364 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions and a 132.6 passer rating. It's been a big bugaboo for the Eagles, especially with Jim Schwartz. The linebackers are so fast to flow. You know Nate Gary's going to be a target for Kyle Shanahan. We've seen him go after linebackers week after week after week and make them look stupid. Uh, Mark, what what do you expect from this play-action attack from the 49ers? I mean, you Pain. just said it. You just <laughs> said it. I mean, look, Shanahan... Our, our good friend Steven Ruiz has that Shanahan meme where he's got him at the microscope and then he identifies a player that he's going to destroy. And if he hasn't posted the Nate Gary one, 
He will. It's coming. Yeah. Like, it's like, look at look, second and six, first quarter, 548 mark, under center, play action, linebacker sells out against the run. Now, this might have been a blitz, but still, mm. get the linebacker to sell out, and he hits Reed on the crosser for an easy game. Like, that's where he wants to be. Like, that's what they want to do. Play action, attack linebackers, attack a weak link, and then give him these easy throws. You get another example, but second 11. Uh, this is second quarter, 12-51, play action, play action, play action. All he has to do is throw the simple check down route because you get that linebacker spinning. It's a dual play action read. He's down at the line of scrimmage. And then suddenly he bails. He's running around like a chicken with his head cut off like that video you posted earlier this week. <laughs> and then the running back is wide open in front of him and the poor linebacker's twirling around. Like that's what's going to happen. That's what's coming. Both the Ruiz meme and these play action plays. So, Mark, if you have to pick a winner in this one, I I, I don't want to make you go, you know, like all out on a, on a, on a ledge with this thing. But you got the Eagles, right? <laughs> I mean, you can be honest, man. Look, fan confidence is fan confidence is low. Fan confidence is low. Just, I mean, I I look. I think if you were buying the Eagles this week, you're buying the whole cornered animal back against the wall. Momentum is real. Like, you're buying into that. Like, that's yeah. what you're thinking, right? Yeah. But where is this game, Mike? It's in San Fran. Are we comfortable about a trip west in this scenario? Like, I look, my, my heart is telling me Philadelphia finds a way to get this done. Every other part of my body, including my head, is telling me, nah. Nah, fam. Like, it's just, it's, it's just a tough matchup. They're getting guys back. You know what Shanahan wants to do. This offense is struggling. Once can't figure out his left foot. Now, maybe if they staple that clip we talked about earlier to his forehead, maybe he figures it out in time. Mm. But the the clock is ticking. And this matchup is, you know, you would think it would be better for, because of how banged up the 49ers are. You know, the pass rush from the 49ers goes from an elite squad to something around mid-tier after all their injuries. But at the same time, I mean... They couldn't do it against the Bengals. They could. They couldn't really look like a, like a real boy against the Bengals. So, I, I don't have a lot a lot of hope for this one. I apologize, gentle listener, for being negative, but like that's where we're at right now. Look, that's, that's, that's <laughs> look, it is what it is. Okay, yeah. we're we're talking about a team that, and we said this last week, right? We said if they can't beat Cincy, man, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now they didn't lose, so they got that going for them, which is nice. But they didn't win either. And you were knocking Joe Burrow around, making that kid look like, you know, he's rocky at the start of the fight against Drago. They didn't lose. Burrow came back, fought tough. So what we're saying is this is another must-tie game. Yes, for it's the- a must-tie. Because <laughs> we're, like, you, like you said, they're going to win the division with an 0-2-14 record. <laughs> and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be the most 20-20 thing that has ever happened. I think that's the best thing no, we no, can I, hope for. Except for perhaps... You know, Jalen Hurts hitting Hakeem Butler from a tight end alignment against a Tampa 2 coverage on a middle read concept to tie yes. that 14th game. Like, that's how 2020 ends. Like, that happens and we all just explode from the takes. Like, <laughs> I'm convinced that's how it ends. So, we look forward to this one and uh, we'll cover it for you next week as well. But for now, we're just going to go. And uh, Mark, any last words for the gentle listeners? Pray for us. Gene!